we need to stop the idea that these machines are better than humans and we need to really stop and think about the huge risk of automating inequality, automating racism. Anytime you have something that looks at all computational or quantitative or is in any way even sort of loosely based on AI, statistical modeling, you know, it gets this sort of veneer of objectivity and science when in fact all these types of human decisions and norms and values get built in along the way. There's definitely a bias problem when it comes to product development, but the reason that this product team is so homogeneous is because there's a societal problem of power. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The Cross-Examination. Hello, I'm Becky Anderson, and welcome to this episode of The Hearing, The Cross-Examination. Far from a science fiction, far future world of Skynet and Isaac Asimov, artificial intelligence and machine learning are already here and in widespread use, just not in perhaps quite the way that was imagined. And the big problem is that we have multiple instances of AI and machine learning systems which are embedding and perpetuating racial and other biases. And of course, they are doing it on a scale and at a speed of which human beings are not capable. I spoke to three wonderfully interesting experts on how this manifests, what it means for lawyers, and what we can do about it. The Cross-Examination My name is Sandra Wachter. I'm a lawyer and associate professor here at the University of Oxford at the Oxford Internet Institute, and I'm also a fellow at the Alan Turing Institute in London. And I focus on the legal and ethical implications of machine learning and AI. Bias and discrimination is one of the most important, most pressing issues that we have to confront when we think about good AI governance. My name is Ivana Bartoletti and my day job, I'm a technical director at Deloitte where I focus on privacy and ethics in artificial intelligence and data analytics. And I am a visiting policy fellow at the, the University of Oxford where I look at the international sharing of data. The problem here is that there is a lot of AI which is named AI, but in reality is algorithmic decision making which is influencing the life of people day in, day out. A chart, you know, I think is incredible now how much how many applications are not reviewed by humans. Really? They are reviewed by automated systems. And AI and algorithms, we're talking about um, uh, predictive technologies used by authorities, policing, and, and to define whether somebody may be a risk of committing a crime, a risk of ending up in poverty, defaulting a payment. I am Christiane Lum. I'm an assistant research professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the Computer and Information Science Department, where I study algorithmic unfairness um, particularly with applications to the criminal justice system. One of the areas I've been thinking about over the last several years is predictive policing, which is essentially using police records to train a machine learning or statistical model, sometimes these sorts of things are called AI, um, to make predictions about who will commit a crime in the future or where crime will occur in the future. 
And there has been a lot of concern, even before I did this work, about the possibility for these sorts of models to perpetuate racial bias. And so back in 2016, I did this project where we applied a real AI model, so a real machine learning model that's used to make predictions about where crime will occur in the future. And we applied that to data from Oakland, California. Specifically, we applied it to um, data collected by police on where drug crimes had occurred. And we wanted to see where it would deploy police in the future. So for context, when we looked at the data from the past, we saw that drug crimes were disproportionately enforced in black and Hispanic neighborhoods. So communities of color had drug laws enforced in them at a much higher rate um, than white communities. And so when this data, um, which only has the time and location of past police records, has nothing to do with anything, say, like race, there's no input to the model that says race of person who has been suspected, nothing about, say, the demographics or the demographic composition of the location where the record occurs, nothing like that. Just the time and location of past records is all that goes into one of these models. Um, and when we looked at where this model would send police in the future, lo and behold, it sent them right back to the Black and Hispanic communities. And this is despite the fact that because the model does not take in explicit information about race, it was marketed as, say, race neutral. Wow. And in fact, what we found was that the the impact was anything but race neutral. And in fact, constant would would have, I want to be clear that it wasn't actually deployed. This We were sort of seeing what would have happened if it were, since this is a technology that was being deployed all over the place and Oakland was considering it at the time. But what we found was that it would have, in fact, concentrated policing back in the communities of color. The Oakland policing study is a clear case of what can go wrong, but how did we get there? And how do we know when we're getting a biased result? All AI systems have bias. The problem stems from the technology itself and the way that AI and machine learning works. In a very simplistic manner, you can think of an AI system as looking at historical data and trying to predict the future. So you're feeding an algorithm with all types of historical decision-making data past hiring decision, past loan decision, decisions about education. And you task the algorithm to find certain patterns and then predict the future based on that. And obviously, when you look at decisions that have been made in employment, in education, um, when it comes to insurance, loan decisions, decisions about criminal justice, very often those decisions have bias in them because humans are biased and they make biased decisions. So the algorithm will pick that up, embed it, and make the same mistakes again in the future. If the data itself is the product of, say, racist policing or racist practices or any other types of undesirable social phenomenon, what the AI learns is exactly those patterns. And then when it makes predictions based on those patterns, it perpetuates and replicates those same patterns. It sounds actually almost like it, it goes beyond perpetuating and replicating from what you were saying. You know, if it was going to start more heavily concentrating, more aggressive policing, in um, ethnic minority communities, you know, you, if you put a police officer in a community, they're there to find a crime, you know, so surely it's going to start increasing the incidence of people of colour being picked up for offences um, or, you know, brought in and, and stopped and searched, creating more data which would be biased. So it would have a kind of a cumulative effect. Yeah, so you got that exactly right. Um, and this is something we experimented with or tried to understand through simulation. Since it wasn't deployed in the real world, we couldn't, in, in this particular location, we couldn't actually see, 
what would happen afterwards. But what we did was we simulated and we said, okay, if police found, say, just 20% more crime in the locations to which they were sent because of this software, and then that additional data was plugged in to make predictions for subsequent days, what would happen? And we found exactly what you're saying. It creates this feedback loop where police go to those locations that have been over-policed in the past based on the algorithm. Then when they're there, um, they, they find a little bit more crime. That gets plugged back into the model, and the model becomes increasingly sure that those are the right locations to go to. Um, and so over time, in our simulated world, oh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's say 25 times more crime in the predicted locations, sort of in those um, ethnic minority communities, up to something like 65 times more crime by the, by the end of only one year of doing that. Again, that's a simulation, but I think it was fairly telling about this type of feedback loop that can be created. So how much of the problem then is the way the system is built in terms of the algorithm and the, the way it makes decisions, and how much of it is the way we collect data, and how much of it is the data itself? People say garbage data in, garbage data out, and that is the problem. You know, data in society is not neutral. A decision of whether somebody is or not going to be in a database is a political decision that somebody's made. You know, to 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 um, include you, elevate you to a database subject, or to keep you out of it. And therefore, when this data is then coded into these machines, making decisions about future allocation of money, even policy decisions, then there is the risk of, of coding and hardwiring inequalities into decisions affecting the future. But it's not just a matter of data. It's also a matter of parameters that are chosen. Um, so, for example, if I am in, in human resources and if I am coding um, using a software for to decide whether somebody is a, is a good employee or not, defining what is a good employee cannot be a neutral thing. The definition of what is good or bad is inevitably the product of a society which has been built and created by a, a dominant class. The way that I usually try to think about it is to roughly distinguish between two types of biases, societal bias and technical bias. So technical bias is when the problem actually stems in the technology itself. That means that design is not um, created in a way that is very inclusive, or you have a data set that is incomplete, for example, facial recognition software that is trained predominantly on white faces and therefore is less accurate for, for people of color and women, for example. So that's a technical bias that evolves when, when you create a system. And then you have societal bias, which is when the problem actually stems from society or from the humans itself. So if you think about hiring decisions, and if you have somebody that makes very prejudiced decisions, is racist or is sexist or ableist, these decisions, the data that they're creating and the employment and promotion and firing decisions, they will be fed into the algorithm and then have an impact on future applicants. Um, so there the problem actually is the human and the data uh, where it comes from. Obviously, right, one informs the other. Like There's a reason why a product team has decided to only use white faces to train facial recognition. But I think it's a very helpful distinction um, to figure out what the problem is that we actually want to tackle. Do we want to fix the technology and or do we want to solve and fix the underlying social problem?
That's really interesting, particularly what you say around um, facial recognition technology. Do you think it is that the decision is made to only use white faces or do you think it's more likely that there are no white faces in the room when the decision is made and people just don't think of it? Well, I'm, I mean, it's both. If we have a team that is not very diverse, then obviously they're going to create products that will reflect their own needs. If you have a team that is more diverse, you have different voices around the table and will create products that serve a wider spectrum of the population. So there's definitely a bias problem um, in itself when it comes to product development. But the reason that this product team is so um, homogeneous is because there's a societal problem of power already. Um, there's a reason why those people were invited to create those systems in the first place. Bias in construction of the systems was one dimension, but at this point, I was really curious to know how many of these systems are in use across the world? Do any of us really know? And what impact are they having on real world discrimination? I think the problem is that um, in a lot of cases, there isn't a lot of public data about this. And so right. again, it's, it's, it's just difficult to know exactly when like the implementation of an algorithm began, um, where police were sent as a result of it, et cetera. I think this is one of the problems with how this is done is that often the software is proprietary and that makes it even more difficult to get information out about, about what's being done. As a lawyer, I find that quite shocking, um, possibly quite naively of me. Um, but because for me, policing is a very interesting um, phenomenon with regards to the state. So police officers are people who are given um, privileges to, to go along with their job, of course, that ordinary citizens don't have. I, Becky, ordinary citizen, do not have the right to put you in a cell and potentially prosecute you and take away your liberty for X period of time. Police are allowed to do that. But of course, part of being allowed to do that means that there are a huge amount of rules and regulations they have to follow because they have this extra privilege to take away the liberty of, of other people. And I find it, as a lawyer, quite shocking, the idea that they may be using AI to target their policing, but we don't have data on when it started, how long they've been doing it, what the effects on the community are. Is there a particular problem, do you think, with transparency in AI and how it's being used? Yeah, I do, I do think there's a problem with transparency. And I mean, in some cases, I think it has to do with the complexity of the model. So if we're talking about some other situations where there's models that are just so complex, a human really can't wrap their head around all of the inner workings. That's one thing. Um, but I think there's also cases, and this, these are also relevant in the legal context, where the models are are transparent from the point of view of a human can understand them. And um the way things are calculated are available to humans to go in and understand, but the process by which humans arrived at making that model um, is not transparent at all. And I think that is a sort of less discussed problem. So let me go into one example of this. One example I looked at is a, um, a risk assessment model that's used in the criminal justice system. So these models are used throughout the criminal justice process um, to make predictions about, for example, whether a person will be rearrested during some time period, maybe that's the pretrial period, so from the time they're arrested to when their case is disposed, um, or some other period, maybe say two years post-release, something like that, right? Um, and then based on these predictions, 
sometimes policy recommendations are associated with those predictions. So for example, if you're predicted to say have a 30% chance of say failing to appear for a court date, um, you might get a, a recommendation of say release not recommended or some level of supervision. Whereas if you were predicted to have, say, a 10% chance of the outcome, say, again, failure to appear, maybe the recommendation would be something like uh, release on recognizance. So just just go home, right? And again, these are, these are used all over the place. And so I was involved in a project to sort of dig into um, sort of the guts of one of these models and reproduce it and figure out where it came from. Um, and again, sort of coming back to the transparency of the model itself, the models themselves are often fairly transparent from the point of view of a human being able to understand them. There'll be things like, okay, one point if you're, say, under 22. Two points if you've been arrested in the past two years. Um, you know, negative two points if you're currently employed. Things like that, right? So they have these sort of point values. Those then get translated to probabilities, which get translated to policy recommendations. Um, and so those point values are transparent. They're available to people who want to you know, to understand what the model's doing. People can count them up on their fingers, right? So in fact, that's the whole point of using these very simple models that is that humans can comprehend them, right? Mm -hmm. But then when you dig into the process that, that by which they're built, that there's a lot of things that happen that really aren't transparent and aren't at all objective. And so I think one of the selling points of these types of models is that it helps judges, magistrates, whomever, decision makers, make more objective decisions. And I think the sort of implicit idea here is that the models, models themselves are objective, right? You've used some data, yeah. say, factors in the past, some of those I just mentioned, age, past criminal history, um, employment status, et cetera, to use a statistical model um, to make a prediction about some behavior in the future. And that, I think, many people view as objective. But then, again, when you dig into how they're created, you see that there's all sorts of arbitrary human decisions that go into it. So in this example I'm thinking of where I tried to reproduce a model, I found that I couldn't actually reproduce the model that was being used in practice um, based only on building statistical models. And so I went back to the folks who had built it and through discussions found out that essentially what had happened, or at least what, what they speculate had happened, was that um, they had built a few different versions of the model. So, you know, one model had, say, two points for being young, another one had three points for being young, another one had, you know, negative one points for being young. For example, they took it to the people who'd commissioned the model, and then the people who had commissioned the model sort of gave input on which of those point values they wanted. So it'd be like, well, how about two points for being young? Uh, how about, you know, three points for um, having been arrested in the past, et cetera. And so by cobbling it together in this way, um, then the sort of criteria by which they're making these decisions is entirely lost to history, right? So it's basically some point values that are recommended, kind of, suggested by various statistical models, then humans come in and just sort of pick the ones they like based on unknown, undocumented criteria. Then those are for sort of Frankenstein together to create a model. And then at the end of the day, this model is sort of used and, and viewed as an objective estimate of somebody's likelihood of an outcome. When in fact, if you sort of dig into it, right, there's all these decisions made by humans, not made by computers. Um, you know, just sort of based on like, what, how do we think things should be happening or what, what sort of, how much should we be penalizing people for these different things um, that again, aren't in any way objective. The problem is that these are not abstract thought experiments. These are real people with real lives and real future opportunities being shut off because of it. I want to be clear that I don't necessarily think computer models are objective either, but I think that's a very clear example of how 
anytime you have something that looks at all computational or quantitative or is in any way even sort of loosely based on um, AI, statistical modeling, sometimes called actuarial modeling, um, you know, it gets this sort of veneer of objectivity and, and science when in fact all these types of human decisions and norms and values get built in along the way. As you were describing that system, in particular the, the kind of arbitrariness of how many points do we ascribe to certain characteristics, you know, sort of assigning value to the different characteristics of a person's life, really, that's what we're talking about. I think I was immediately kind of struck by the difference between that and the approach of justice that says, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. This idea that, you know, you really have to prove a case to take somebody's liberty away. But, I mean, refusing somebody bail, for example, is taking their liberty away for, you know, in some cases, they, some people can be on, on remand or on bail um, or, you know, on remand waiting for a hearing for a substantial portion of time, you know, which is their lives locked up, disrupted, probably lost a job and all of that sort of thing. And I think as lawyers, it is really important for us to understand the pervasiveness of AI, the way it's being used, the flaws in the system, and to understand that there is a, a that there is a huge lack of transparency, which could be impacting on our work that we don't have visibility of. The issue is not just about, say, where society is biased, um, people are biased. Yes, the problem is, is not bias. Bias is natural. Everybody has bias. The problem is bias that is um, leads to decisions that could be uh, they're racist or uh, sexist and 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 because of, of the nature of algorithmic decision making they are even harder to detect and more opaque to, to to investigate if you wanted to solve racial bias or any type of algorithmic bias, the, the, the really hard thing you need to do is try to figure out what are the underlying reasons of that social bias and what is it that we can do in order to solve it. That's so interesting because I, I wanted to ask you how we eliminate bias from AI systems, but it's almost sounding to me like what you're saying is the way you eliminate bias from AI systems is to completely revolutionize our education policy and our housing policy and the the kind of systemic bias in society? I think it has to be both. I think, um, for example, if you think about health data, very often the health data that we collect is collected from male white patients. So all the prediction tools that are developed on those type of health data will be very good for male patients, but not as good for female patients or people of color. So having more data on those groups will actually improve the system without having the need of, you know, figuring out how to, you know, address gender issues in our society. So there are ways of making systems better by trying to fix the technology. Very often, though, that might not actually be enough because more data will not eliminate um, the problem. Um, rather, it will just paint a more accurate picture of the problem. Um, if, if I think about um, gender pay gaps, for example, right, and, and why discrepancy exists there, I can collect even more data on that. It will not make the gender pay gap go away. It will just paint me a more accurate picture of 
you know, those biases in our society. So we have to be very careful when we look at the problem of whether we can solve it by fixing the technology and or if we actually have to tackle the underlying root of it. We can't really think about it as eliminating bias because I think that's sort of a a kind of fool's errand because not everyone will agree on what bias is. Like not everyone will agree on what fairness is, right? Like to to one person, what a fair system looks like to a different person is it what a very unfair system looks like. And so um, I think with bias, it's kind of the same thing. And so you could think about it, you know, we sort of take it out of this context and think about it maybe in a, in a slightly different context of um, say you wanted to build a model where you wanted to say, predict someone's salary, maybe this could be used to determine like what sort of salary they would, they would um, accept, right, um, for a new job based on whatever characteristics. And, you know, women are on average paid less than men. And mm -hmm. so in some sense, that is a form of bias, but it's this kind of societal bias, right? The data itself is an adequate or an accurate representation of what's going on. Um, but that's, you know, representing some sort of underlying bias in the system. Um, now, how would you fix that? You could adjust the model so that on average, the model predicts a salary, say, that is the same for a woman as a, a man. But not everyone's going to agree that that's unbiased, right? You can look at all the controversy over, you know, why there are, why this wage gap exists. Is it justified, right? Like, is it okay? It's like normatively, is it okay that women are making less and people try to control for all sorts of factors? Well, if you account for, I don't know, time out due to childcare or you account for differences in preferences with respect to job types, et cetera, well, that, ex that explains some portion of the gap. And so that portion's okay, right? And depending on which factors you want to include as the ones that are okay to explain the gap, you're going to get to a very different place in terms of what gap is appropriate or justifiable. And that applies a different solution for how much of that gap should be reduced in, in the model, right? Yeah. And so as long as there would be disagreements about what sort of factors justifiably influence, say, differences in wages, um, you would have people all over the board on what types of um, interventions should be made to the AI to remove that bias because people don't fundamentally agree on what the bias is. Right, like people have different ideas about to what extent that difference is due to something they might call bias and to what extent it's due to something they think is completely justifiable and okay. As a lawyer, it almost sounds to me like we're circling back round to legislation or contractual terms for pieces of AI specifying that XYZ biases need to be eliminated in order that they're just not being replicated. Yeah. Um, those kind of tr traditional tools, I suppose, which are how we enforce behaviours that we want to see. Um, because I think that it, it, it certainly seems to be that in the absence of that enforcement and of those clear standards, then it is, I mean, I hesitate to ca characterise AI as a bit of like the Wild West, but it, it sort of feels that way. I mean, is that an accurate characterization? Am I just uh, completely off the wall? No, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I think your your hunch and intuition is is also very much reflected in the research that is out there. Lawyers, I think, have an incredible job right now, and also an incredible opportunity to help shape the future of the law around this. And with the awareness that I would like lawyers to have, they can't do this on their own. That it's really important to work together with society and with data scientists to really try and understand how we move forward with this. 
it will be extremely important that legal scholars work together with with technologists. Um, I think technologists very often don't understand the demands of the law and often create technology that might be in clash or not complying with the law, and that's a problem. Um, and in the same way, legal scholars need to listen to technologists because very often, if you don't understand the technology, you might actually make bad recommendations of how to govern the system. We need controls about all this. We need to stop the idea that these machines are better than humans. And we need to really stop for a moment and think about the huge risks of automating inequality, automating racism, if we don't put enough controls around the systems and enough transparency and enough accountability. I think what this points to is that we really just need to be very intentional about these things. If you're going to build a model, you know, be very explicit about the types of worldview you're, you're building into it, the types of, say, bias or disparities or um, gaps, for example, that are in there and why they're there and, and sort of just be very thoughtful about where the data comes from, what sort of undesirable facets are baked into the data that, you know, that's going to be training the model, the model's going to be learning those baked in say, disparities, and are those okay or not? And I think, you know, not everyone's going to land on the same place with respect to what's okay and what's not. But I think, you know, just sort of not blindly trusting that data is objective, that models built on data are objective, and being a lot more thoughtful about that is a step in the right direction. It's also giving people more agency over whether they're subject to models at all. So for example, you know, people people often say, should this model be deployed? And it's, and it's hard for me as a person who who is likely not going to be evaluated by, say, the criminal justice models that I study, to say that. And I think that should be more up to the communities they're going to impact about, about whether those they're appropriate. It's a very complicated area, rife with problems. Um, people always want to jump to sort of the technical fix the AI, fix the bias solution. In a lot of cases, you know, really, if we wanted to fix this, it would be about like making a just and fair world. There is a whole field dedicated to what's called AI fairness. So that's the field that is trying to figure out how we can test and prevent bias that that's happening. And very often people will develop tests that are um, kind of freezing the status quo and you know justifying future decisions by past decisions saying, oh, we have done this in the past and we have been doing this as humans and now it's just an algorithm doing that. And therefore, um, the best thing that we can do, or the, the, the highest aspiration that we have is not to make things worse, making sure that the injustices in our society don't get worse, right? So all the tests that are out there, the majority of tests that are out there are just there to detect and prevent things from getting worse. But that's not really how you address unfairness in a society, if you just settle for the status quo, you will actually never achieve um, social equality. And it's a big problem. So in a paper that we have written, which is called Bias Preservation and Machine Learning, we showed that 13 uh, tests out of 20, so two thirds of them, are actually preventing social progress because they're justifying the future by looking at the past, by just saying, oh, we have done decision-making like this in the past, if we just carried on in the future, that is enough in terms of equality, not having the aspiration to use technology to make the world a better place. And I think that is actually what technology is supposed to be 
used. Um, it's about innovation that helps the majority of society rather than just making things more efficient and profitable. So this is sort of the ultimate goal in some ways, isn't it? Is actually using the technology to eliminate societal bias and the bias that's within all humans um, by sort of taking that ability to have your decision influenced in that way away from you. I think it, it really boils down to the philosophical question of what you want technology to be. Um, do you want technology just to execute the things and actions that humans used to do in a more uh, efficient time and cost-saving way? Or do you think the, the value of innovation is actually to bring society closer together? Well, I'm definitely in that camp. Um, and I think you can actually use AI for exactly those purposes. If you really use it, um, as a diagnostical tool, then it's powerful because it might actually show you inequality where you didn't know it existed. Very often, your intuition might not actually be good enough. So an easy example is that when humans discriminate against humans, you understand why they do in certain things because you understand their psyche and their purposes and the social world that they're in. My final question is going to be about liability because, you know, we lawyers, we love to know who's to blame. Yes. Um, and I would anticipate that there is going to be questions of liability if cases ever get to court on AIs who did, you know, an AI who did block majority of black candidates from going to a particular university. You can see a class action coming out of that quite easily. So I suppose at that point is, you know, is the liability for that with the people who designed the AI, who sold the AI solution, who used the AI solution at the university level. So where do you think that that's going to fall? That's a very, very good question. Um, um, I think Dostoevsky said, if you don't know who is to blame, then everybody is to blame. And I think that's, <laughs> that's exactly how we probably have to think about that, because it's not just the, the, the bias and the injustice you know, surfaces from so many directions at the same time. Um, it's, you know, it's the recruitment person that didn't hire the black person because of their prejudice, which is then being fed into the algorithm. It's the bias of the product team that only used white faces for racial recognition. It's us clicking on the content um, that is discriminatory as certain people and then reinforces the algorithm in itself. And it's the regulator not putting safeguards in place. Right, it's all of those people's fault, of our, our fault, and you actually need to tackle all of that at the same time. You need to look at the, the uh, um, design choice, have teams that are diverse enough, and think about the needs of the whole society. You need regulation that prevents and punishes um, discrimination. Um, you need to educate people about implicit bias when they make decisions, and you need to educate the wider public about their responsibility when engaging with digital technologies. So it's all of our responsibility um, to tackle that problem together. As I see it then, the problem is threefold. One, algorithms can be biased. Two, data can be biased. And three, data collection can be biased and each of these elements can produce a result which is discriminatory. 
lawyers will need a new skill set and a new technical understanding as yet again we experience a technological leap. And of course this opens up the opportunity for more areas of work. I think the final thought that I wanted to leave you with harks back to what I said at the start of the episode about science fiction. The reality is that actually I think we're living in the future right now. And the role of lawyers in that future? Surely it has to be one of continuing an independent scrutiny. The Hearing. The Cross-Examination. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.